The mystery from Ephesians chapter 3, verses 1 to 6. And this is part 10 in our series on Ephesians. So for a number of weeks now, we have been working our way through Paul's letter to the, to the Ephesians. In the, in the last chapter that we saw, we have we've seen the last couple of weeks, we spoke of the alienations the Gentiles endured before coming to Christ. This meant that they were without hope and without God in the world. But God's grace was shown to them and they experienced reconciliation through Christ. They were brought to him and they were brought together with one another as part of the one body. So their lives were changed in the most dramatic way. So by his death, the barriers between Jew and Gentile and between God and man have been demolished. And God is reconciling, he's bringing together, creating a new kingdom and a family and a new temple through the Son. So we now come to the third chapter of this remarkable letter as he, as he turns his attention away from them to himself. It's like he's saying, enough of you, now let's talk about me. But he does this for a good reason. For, you see, he needs to explain his own situation of what is happening to him. And and word has probably come to him that the Ephesians, those people in Asia Minor, minor, are are really concerned for Paul's plight, the fact that he's a prisoner in Rome. They don't know what's going to happen to him because there's a trial coming up. He's he's been in prison now for a few years and there's a trial coming up before Caesar. So he writes also to reassure them and help them to see the greater picture of God's purposes, not just for him, but for all of believers. So, first of all, let's look at Paul the prisoner, verse 1. For this reason, I, Paul... The prisoner of Christ Jesus for the sake of you Gentiles. It's interesting that he starts off by saying for this reason, but then doesn't give us the reason until, that is, until verse 13. It's like he begins to say one thing and then he's distracted by this tremendous truth that captures him and he loses his train of thought and, and he brings this truth ahead of time until finally he gets back to what he started to say now, where was I? And, and, and he continues his, his teaching. So to understand the passage a little better, we, we should read it as, for this reason, and then go to verse 13, I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. Notice the way in which he introduces himself as a prisoner of Christ Jesus. By this stage, he has been a prisoner for between, in Rome, for between two and four years. So it's, it's quite a length of time. And as we said last week, he was arrested in Jerusalem on a false charge of bringing a Gentile into the temple courts. And upon his appeal to 
the highest, unless he appealed, they were going to lynch him then, so he appeals as a Roman citizen that he was, he appeals to the highest authority in the empire, that was Caesar himself. So he was put on a prison ship and transported all the way to Rome. The great missionary and explorer to to Africa, David Livingstone, he once said, if a commission by an earthly king is considered an honour, how can a commission by a heavenly king be considered a sacrifice? And it is striking that Paul nowhere refers to himself as a prisoner of Caesar. Nowhere does he say that this is a terrible injustice that is happening to him, a a terrible miscarriage of justice. Yes, he was Caesar's prisoner, but he never says that. It is always what? A prisoner of Christ Jesus. You've got to get your head around this. Because it's very instructive for us. The reason, the reason is obvious when you read his letters. This is because he understood, he had such a view of God, the sovereignty of God, that he understood that Caesar was not the one who had the final say about him. He wasn't a victim of circumstance. Jesus was. And so the duration of his confinement and the ultimate result of the trial was not really determined by Caesar. It was determined by the Lord Jesus. Now this is a really important lesson for us. Because we sometimes become worried and anxious and distressed about the, what's going on in our world, the, the political powers, what are they doing in our world today. We should really listen to the Apostle. Oh, I know, I know we often speak about God having a plan for everything and this is part of his sovereign plan. And also we we love to quote Romans 8.28. We know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. So we have to accept that he predestines or predetermines not only world events, but our personal lives as well. God doesn't react He rules. To us, this might sound unfair, that even God predestines our salvation. It might sound unfair to us. To us, this might sound that, you know, what, what Paul has declared in the first couple of chapters doesn't, you know, no, I, I want to have a say as to what happens to me. I'm the ruler of my little kingdom. Thank you very much. Again, Paul is undergoing this unfair trial under Roman arrest because he has been chosen to preach the gospel 
to the Gentiles. So he obviously had to come to terms with this and not complain about it as as being unfair, but as a direct consequence of the fact that he has been obedient to God. Obedient to God means he is arrested, he's under trial, so he's actually at the centre of God's will. It's not because of disobedience, it's not because of some terrible sin that he has committed that he's being punished by God. No, he's at the centre of God's will and he's suffering for it. Can you get your head around that? And he cites the reason for the imprisonment. He was a prisoner for the sake of the Gentiles. Just go back a few years before his conversion, before Acts chapter 9, and, and, and if you had approached Paul, young Paul then, reaching out to the Gentiles would have been laughable. He would have laughed his head off if you had suggested that to him in his previous life. Because he hated the Gentiles. But now, not only is, did his arrest come about because he preached the gospel to the Gentiles, he was accused of that, but, but he was falsely arrested because he brought somebody from Ephesus, he was falsely accused of being an Ephesian, a Gentile, into the temple courts. But, but he's saying, no, my imprisonment is actually for your benefit. It's for your sake, for the sake of the, of the Gentiles. And, and if it benefited the Gentiles in Ephesus, in Asia Minor, it has benefited the South Americans, the Africans, the Europeans, and even the Aussies. It is for our benefit that the Apostle Paul was going through this 2,000 years ago. For our sake. We are included, unless you have some type of Jewish blood. I think I have about 1%, so that makes me a Jew. Um, The rest of us are Gentiles. So, Paul the prisoner. Secondly, Paul the administrator. Verse 2, surely you have heard about the administration of God's grace that was that was given to me for you. God's grace to him for you. The second thing Paul says about himself so that they might understand what he was going through is that he was an administrator or a steward of God's grace. God commits this huge responsibility on him. And and the Greek word behind the, the word administration there is oikonomian oikonomian you know what that sounds like yes from which we get our word for economy so this is how it comes about that word economy oikonomian oikos is house and nomos is law so literally administration is the law of the house But here, it's obviously, when we talk about economy, we normally think about financial matters. But here, at its root, it's not restricted to financial matters alone. 
but a much wider definition which includes the running of the whole household. Includes financial matters, includes cleaning, includes discipline, includes everything. And he's a steward. He is, says Paul, you're the administrator here. Under God's guidance, under God's grace, he was given this for the benefit of the Gentiles. Now, sometimes you might have heard me use the expression in God's economy. So now you sort of understand the background behind that expression. You might have heard it not just from me, but from others. In doing that, I'm not limiting God's interest in only in financial matters. Because God is involved in everything in our lives. Nothing is outside of God's economy, including the the hairs on our head. Nothing. Not even the trivial. And he has made us stewards, administrators uh, of our time, of our health, of our possessions, of our gifts, of our talents, He has made us administrators. He says, okay, I'm giving you this. How are you going to do it? In this regard, the Apostle Peter says, his divine power has granted us all things, all things that pertain to life, life and godliness. So both the material and the spiritual. God has given us everything. Right? Everything. What do you mean everything? I mean everything. He's given us all. So, the prisoner, the administrator, now we come to the teacher, verses 3 to 4. That is, the mystery made known to me by revelation, as I have already written briefly, In reading this, then you will be able to understand that my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to people in other generations, as it has now been revealed by the Spirit of God's holy apostles, to God's holy apostles and prophets. So the reason he's writing his letter is to share his insight, to to teach them, to help them understand the mystery of Christ. Unfortunately, when you hear the word mystery, uh, you, you might be thinking about some Agatha Christie or Sherlock Holmes type of mystery novel. That is usually the understanding in the English language. And, and the reason why these movies and, and novels or novels that have been turned into movies are popular is that there is something about us human beings which causes us to be to be captivated, it, it captures our interest, to be, we're fascinated by mystery, we want to know an answer, we, we, there's something hidden, something secret, there is some cryptic truth and we, we sort of want to go along the way discovering these, uh, solving how it all sort of works together, we want to know what happens at the end of the book, at the end of the movie, who done it. But in the original Greek, it simply means something that is beyond natural knowledge, something that has been previously concealed, now it is revealed. 
something that was not fully revealed in the Old Testament is now disclosed in the New. That is the mystery of Christ. My dad always used to use an illustration when he was preaching about the Old Testament is a, is a, is a rose that is closed. In Spanish we have el, el capullo. What's in English, el capullo? It's the, the, the rose bud, the bud. And in the New Testament, it's open, fully open. That's a, I think that's a good illustration, isn't it? You don't know how beautiful the flower is until, until it opens. That is the mystery of Christ. And so he clarifies his role to the Corinthians. In 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 1, he says, This then is how you ought to regard us, he says, as servants of Christ and as those entrusted with the mysteries God has revealed. And this is how Paul and his fellow servants and the other apostles saw themselves. When you are entrusted with something as important as this, do you keep it to yourself? No. It, it, it's not restricted to some particular group or some, or some select group in a secret society. In other words, Christianity is not, it's not, a, it's not a religion of religious techniques which allows us just a few enlightened ones who who gain insight into the secrets of spirituality. And if you really want to get there, then you have to sacrifice and and commit yourself for years and years and years until you reach a certain level. So you can understand the sacred texts. That's what Hinduism is. Christianity is not about secrets of a faith, but it is grounded in what Jesus did in the public There was nothing hidden before witnesses. Everybody saw it. It was disclosed. Christianity is about what Jesus did for us in history. And, and, And the gospel is the public proclamation of what Jesus did for sinners. Good news is not something to be hidden under a bushel, it's put on top of the table so that the light shines everybody and everybody benefits from it it is something to be proclaimed and what's more when he says made known to me by revelation it means that Paul was taught this personally by the Lord Jesus himself This is where we get our understanding of the authority of the Apostle Paul. Paul didn't learn it from the other apostles, which is what some people think. You know, he just went and and hung around with them for a while and he was taught all this stuff because the others had been with Jesus, Paul was not. He he tells us plainly in his letter to the Galatians, this is what he says in Galatians 1.12, that he did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it. Rather, I received it by revelation from Jesus Christ. And, and 
This is actually reinforced in the words in our text, in our devotion around communion just a few moments ago. Remember the words? 1 Corinthians 11, 23. For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus on the night he was betrayed took bread. So again, it's a reinforcement that Jesus himself revealed this truth to him. In other words, Paul wasn't there. Jesus, he wasn't there at, in, the, in the upper room. But Jesus himself appeared to Paul and told him all that went on. Since then, of course, in the last 2,000 years, so many have appeared claiming some special revelation from God and they went on and started their own heresies and doomsday cults and the rest, right? But this revelation, this special revelation was something reserved to God's holy apostles and prophets. That's it. Something else that is indirectly mentioned here is the other benefit of his arrest. Namely, that as he was arrested, while he was arrested, while he was awaiting trial, that he had time to write these letters. Not only would these letters benefit the Ephesians, but in no small measure these letters would go on to change the cause of human history. These letters that we are reading right now, Ancient words, we just sung it, right? Long preserved. And it's a miracle that they have been preserved. You know how many times they have gone about, destroyed it, burned it. They had to be hidden for their own protection. People memorized it. I was just reading, uh, I was watching um, a pastor went to visit some Chinese Christians. And he was telling the story. Some faithful Chinese Christians in the underground church in China memorizing scripture because they have no text available to them because if anybody catches them with the, the Bible, uh, you know, they're going to be killed. It's a story of what happened in Eastern Europe, in Russia, Poland, Ukraine, so many other parts of the world. It is a sacred text. It is a hated text. The enemy doesn't want you to read it. And unfortunately, in this day and age, we have so many copies of it, so many different translations of it, that the enemy uses another, another thing to keep you from the text. And what is it? Distraction. I've got to do other stuff. I don't really, I don't really have time to read the Bible. You know? It's ancient text. But in part of that, the words in that song, that they, that it is soaked in the martyr's bloods, in, in martyr's blood. There's a high cost to bring these texts to you. This is why they are sacred. And as 2,000 years later... I, some of the churches 
I would say most of the churches that the Apostle Paul wrote to, all the churches the Apostle wrote to, um, they are no longer there in 2,000 years later. And you can understand that. And if the Apostle Paul sort of just said, I'm not doing anything, I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna wait for the trial, he just, no. Nah. We wouldn't have Ephesians, we wouldn't have all these letters if you had that attitude. Until God releases me, he says, until I can go visit these people, I'm not going to do anything. But what did Paul do? No, he, he changes his mind. He says, no, I'm going to write this to benefit the Ephesians. But in God's economy, there's that word again, as a, an administrator of God's household, the churches did not survive, but the texts have, the letters have, and so we have them. Because it is God's word. It is God's providence. They survived. They're in front of us. So writing these letters was the greatest thing the apostle ever did. In no, more, in no small measure. And it is these who have changed lives and gone on to change lives and communities and laws and societies and civilizations these letters that you have right here. Now the mystery. The mystery is that through the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members together of one body and sharers together in the promise in Christ Jesus. Now before we discuss what the mystery is, first let's discuss what it is not. It is not the truth that the Gentiles would turn to God. This had been promised in the Old Testament. The prophet spoke about this. For example, the prophet Isaiah said this of the Messiah in in Isaiah chapter 49 verse 6. It is too small a thing for you to be my servant to restore the tribes of Jacob and bring back those of Israel I have kept. I will also make you a light for the Gentiles that my salvation, and listen to this, may reach to the ends of the earth. This is 700 years before Jesus. This was already promised. So it wasn't a mystery in in that sense. This is not actually what the mystery is about. So what can possibly be greater than all the nations coming to know God? And here it is. Not only would the nations come to know him, but both Gentiles and Jews would be joined together in the closest possible bond. For us, maybe 2,000 years later, perhaps it doesn't look like such a big deal anymore. And I think sometimes we are so blinded by familiarity with these terms that we miss the impact this had when it was declared. So we need to, as, as, as we read this, we need to ask God to open the eyes of our understanding to appreciate how fantastic this great mystery really is. And, and maybe also the Christian church over the past 2,000 years hasn't been the most obedient when it comes to breaking down breaking down the barriers of race 
and class between the rich and poor, the slave and the free. And this has this is not just a problem in the last 200 years, but it has been a problem ever since the, the early church as well. The early church, church had issues that they had to work through and resolve. For example, in Acts chapter, chapter 6, there was an uneven distribution of food and it was based on racial grounds. It was being given to the Jews, the Jewish Christians and the Greek Christians were missing out. Then we have the Apostle Paul's warning about divisions that we spoke about to the Corinthians with regards to the Lord's Supper. It was at the very time when they were supposed to come together, communion, that's what it means, coming together around the Lord's table, there were cliques, there were divisions, there were separations, there were different groups. And this is why the Apostle Paul had to be so direct and tell them, this is not on, guys. But despite all that, when the early Christians started living in a way that was radical, in a way that was revolutionary, people started to notice and their numbers continued to grow. And they all came together under the cross. Any serious study of history shows that the world would have been a very different place. The world we have today would have been a very different place without the church. And so many of the institutions, such as schools, hospitals, orphanages, many of the laws with regard to social benefits, the the very commonwealth itself, pensions... And all of those things, all of that, that stuff, that, that was all based on Christian principles. All of them. And then governments started taking over these things. You look at the universities in the US, they were all started by churches, by Christians. And, and, and is this, for this reason, the renowned Anglican Archbishop William Temple once said, The church is the only cooperative society in the world that exists for the benefits of its non-members. The influence of the church is not just for the church. It's, It's for the rest of society. And if you can't appreciate this, if you can't see it, at least I beg you to open your eyes and see what is happening in our world as the Christian faith is being pushed away and further and further away from the centre of public life. In our parliaments, in our schools, in our universities, push it away. Don't mention the ancient texts. This is is the consequence. This is already what the Apostle Paul wrote, Romans 1, 21-22. He said... Their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, what happened? They became fools. We can't tell what a boy boy and a girl is a girl anymore. It's there! It's there! Open your eyes! No, you can't say that. 
Yes, I can. Binary. Boy is a boy, girl is a girl. There's no confusion. All of nature is binary. So while explaining this mystery, Paul does something unusual. He doesn't have the the necessary words to express himself. So he's he's thinking, he's strutting in his prison cell, you know, dictating, hey, Ted, write this, uh, you know. I'm trying to keep up. Uh, he's there. He says, what words can I... What, 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 is it, what is it that is happening? So he, he actually makes, some, makes up some words in, in, in the Greek language. He invents three words which you find nowhere else in the New Testament. They literally mean joint heirs, joint bodies, and joint partakers. That's the literal translation. So what is he talking about? Joint heirs. An heir, as we saw in the first part of of Ephesians chapter 1, an heir is someone who inherits. What do we inherit? The inheritance is the kingdom. The kingdom promised from the Old Testament. Promised to Abraham. And there is not one kingdom for the Jews, another kingdom for the, the Gentiles, and another one for the South Americans. Yes, they all have their own little kingdoms, and the Incas, and the Mayans, and then the Spanish, and... Everybody runs their own little kingdom. No, we are fellow heirs. One kingdom. Romans 8.17 Now if we are children, then we are heirs. Heirs of God. And co-heirs with Christ. Joint members of the body. This is the body of Christ. Which we all as believers are part through the church. This is why he writes to the Corinthians. By one spirit, we were all baptized into one body, whether we be Jews or Greeks, whether we be bond or free, slave or free, and have been all made to drink into one spirit. He's referring to communion. And then... The third word is uh, literally it's joint partakers of the promise. What promises? The promises of the new covenant. In communion, again, this is the new covenant. So we are part of that promise. We have been given this promise. This is now ours through the Holy Spirit. Hebrews ten fifteen to 17. The Holy Spirit also testifies to us about this. First, he says, this is the covenant I will make with them after that time, says the Lord. I will put my laws into their hearts and I will write them on their minds. Then he adds, their sins and lawless acts I will remember no more. That is forgiveness, that is grace. Just to finish off and finally... You can read these words in in a theological way, in a doctrinal sort of way, and there is a lot of that in here. It's a very chunky passage. But if you just get stuck in that, you have missed the point of what Paul is saying. It's like missing the beauty of the forest because you have focused 
on a single tree. We need to step back and we see that God has set his son at the heart of all things and the church, much maligned over the years, the church is central to God's purposes in this world. And as you look around the room, I give thanks for my church and so should you. With all our different backgrounds and ethnicities, the bricks in the building, all different colours, we have been blessed beyond measure. We are all a direct product of the marvellous mystery of Christ. Joint heirs, members, partakers of the same promise that is for all of us in Jesus Christ. Amen.